I encourage you, if you don't have an outline, they're out on the back table. It's good to be here. I don't know if there's anybody here visiting with us this morning, but if you are, we just want to say welcome. We're glad to have you with us. We also uh, want you to be aware of the fact that we are in the, uh, the closing part of a 26-week series out of the book of Matthew. Uh, the uh, emphasis is King Jesus and his kingdom of hope. This is week 20 in a 20-week series. And um, we have the, the joy and the privilege of spending the last 10 weeks of this series in the last week of Jesus' life, which uh, we're excited about because often that last week is really hurried within the Passion Week, but we're having the ability to have some breath and life and to really get involved uh, in what happens during this last week of Jesus' life, which is a life full of so many things that are really important for us to know uh, as believers. And so... Um, we're currently at Tuesday afternoon after Jesus' theological debates with the religious leaders in which he warns the people about them and pronounces woe on them. Ed spoke on this last week in his sermon. And Matthew 23 ended with these words from verses 37 to 39. Let me read them to you. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Matthew 24, which is today's sermon text, picks up right after these words. Listen to verses 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? And then he asked, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So the disciples were reacting to Jesus' words of lament and his word about the house being left desolate, uh, this idea that this is a re reference to the temple itself, which was the center and pride of Israel and is where God was present. And he was saying it was going to be left desolate. And so these disciples are like, wait, what, what is Jesus really saying? And you've got to remember that these are all Galileans. And they haven't seen the temple that much. As a matter of fact, they probably, for most of them, had only seen it a couple times in their lives. And this temple was this magnificent building um, that was even better than the temple in Solomon's times because Herod, uh, who was the, the king when Jesus was born, actually took 60 years to rebuild this and to make it something spectacular. And I just want to show a couple pictures so you get an idea of what they were looking at from the Mount of, Mount of Olivet. There's this, look at this edifice. It is, it is huge. It's on top of a mount. And you can see that um, if you were somewhere else looking, 
how amazing this would look because it was the highest point. So there was nothing higher than the temple when you were looking up. Take the next picture. And the way Herod did it was, you can see that there's gold plate all through the different parts and buildings. And then the stones were a white, a pure white stone. So they would say that when you looked up at the temple when the sun was shining, it was as if it was glistening because the gold just shone and it was reflecting. And as people looked up, and then because the white stones were so white and the reflection, it looked like there was snow on the mount there. It was this unbelievable sight when people were looking up at it. And, and this is what they were saying to Jesus. Look at these buildings. Look, look what's going on. Look, look how amazing it is. And, and you're saying that, one stone won't remain on another stone? Like, this is blowing our minds. Like, think about that. Think about people who all their lives, this was the center of their life. And Jesus was saying to them, well, you do not know, but one stone will not be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. So when we read in verse 3, the disciples' reactions to this. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? The disciples were very curious, right? When, when will this happen? The, you know, this is, to them, this was like the signs of the end. This was like, if this happens, then this is Jesus coming back, and it's all over at that point. That's sort of the way they were thinking in, their old, in the Old Testament um, scripture that they had grown up with and what they were taught. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, you know, this question is still prominent in the hearts of people today. What's going to happen? What's the future going to be like? What's the end going to be like? And... Um, it's sort of what we call apocalyptic thinking, right? And I was thinking about that. What are images that we see? I mean, many, many times, well, we can put a couple images up that we see today, right? We, we have certainly the image of the world ending because of asteroids, right? We have this image. It's been out there for a number of years. It's been something that uh, we have seen in movies and all kinds of things of that nature. Another way that the world has ended and certainly with the war in the Ukraine, nuclear attack, the world ending because of a nuclear disaster. We've had that in our minds, in our hearts, these images, apocalyptic images. Now the next one, the idea that nature is, going to, is like so out of hand that it can bring complete destruction. Um, certainly one of my favorite movies, The Day After Tomorrow, sort of presents this, uh, this idea. So, so we have these images, and I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, okay, uh, how many movies do you think uh, have this type of apocalyptic type of imagery that we're seeing all the time? So I have a list from 2020 to 23. From 2020 to 23, there are over 20 movies that have an apocalyptic setting. When you go back from 2010 to 2019, there are 120 movies that have this. Is, is it not a prominent question 
that people are being drawn to over and over again. That's not including books. That's not including TV series. So this is something that's on the heart of people, and it was certainly on the heart of the disciples as they came to Jesus. It's something that we are not only curious about, but we really truly want to know. It's, it's built in us because eternity is built in our hearts. So we can begin now to say, okay, what follows then in verses 4 through 51 is a prophecy to prepare the disciples and us for the catastrophic and apocalyptic events that will come upon Israel with the destruction of the temple and during the interval of time before his return, which is now for us, before his return to glory and triumph. So now I'm going to read verses 4 through 51. And the reason I'm reading the whole text is because I really want us to be thinking about this, thinking about what Jesus is saying, how he's pointing us to apocalyptic events, how they're, they're there. Now, the one thing you need to recognize is, is that as Jesus is proclaiming this, remember that this is a sketch, this is an outline, because the disciples still haven't seen the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. They haven't had Jesus walking with them after the resurrection and telling them more about the kingdom and the future. So this is more of an outline which is going to be filled in, in particular, by First and Second Thessalonians and the book of Revelation. So we're not going there, but there is an outline here that we're going to look at that I believe the Spirit wants to use for us to encourage us and to give us an ability to see things in light of what the future is as the God of the universe speaks it. So get this as you're thinking about these words. This is the God of the universe telling you, revealing to us what the future is. Who better than the God of the universe? So that's why it's important for me to read it all. So let's start reading. Verse 4. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to, the to be persecuted and to be put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. 
If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, don't go out. Here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there's a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the stress of these days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds. For one of his angels with a loud trumpet call, for one of the ends of the heavens to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man, for in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know of what day your Lord will come, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom the master who is put in charge of the servants in his household to give them food at a proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect it at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So ends God's word. Some very powerful images in this, is there not? And so many things that are being said. Can I cover them all right now? No, I cannot. Do I intend to cover them all right now? No, I do not. But there are things that we need to hear from the Holy Spirit today that I believe will encourage us. Jesus reveals the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, but 
he uses these events to foreshadow end time events. So it's sort of what they call a foreshadowing or a double reference where there is a, a so almost imminent answering of this prophecy, and yet that prophecy is pointing to a time in the future where this event will symbolize that which is going to happen in the later prophecy. And this is what's happening uh, as Jesus is talking. He's intertwining his, his answer to both the disciples' questions concerning destruction of the temple and his coming at the end of the age. So when we look at this in verses 4 to 8, Jesus, Jesus gives a preview of the general conditions on earth that characterize the entire age before the coming of the Lord. That's, that's right now. That includes right now. There, there will be false messiahs, wars, rumors of war, all types of calamities. He describes these as the beginning of birth pains. The idea that birth pains, when they come, they are basically a sign that's pointing to something that's coming that is, by God's grace, a glorious thing, the birth of a child. But birth pains come in waves. It doesn't necessarily mean because you get one birth pain, the next moment you're going to have a baby. And certainly I know many of the moms in here would tell you that's certainly not true. And I've experienced as a father, and again, only as a father, um, but... But that up and down of the birth pains, and that might take an hour, it might take 24 hours, it might take a few days. And it's this idea that these birth pains will come in waves. These different things that are happening, these calamities and all these things will come in waves until that time when Jesus comes. So although the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven brings redemption to its citizens by God's grace, the inauguration is Jesus coming and dying and rising and calling us to repentance, bringing salvation, the whole world continues to experience birth pains as it awaits the final redemption, Jesus' second coming. As do even believers who had the first fruits of the Spirit. Listen to what Romans 8 22 to 25 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So this is idea that even though we are saved, we still wait. And we still, with the world, experience these birth pains during this interval time of the already and not yet in which Jesus will come in the second coming. So he begins this, and then Jesus, right at verse 9, he switches from prophesying the suffering of the world that the world will experience to predicting the suffering his disciples and believers through this age will experience. That's us. Persecution, which leads to betrayal. As faith is tested, many will turn away. They'll become enemies of Jesus and his people. This leads to deception. This leads to an increase in wickedness and lovelessness, both in the church and in the world. 
I don't know about you, but I think that's a pretty accurate picture of what we're seeing right now. A pretty accurate picture of our 24-7 news cycle. A pretty accurate picture of what we're actually seeing in the churches. So it's very clear that these are the things the church is going to experience when Jesus said in John 15, I am going to have adversity, and so my people will have adversity. This is what we're experiencing. And even more, and I think I always want to say this because I think we lose sight of this in our culture, we are experiencing more persecution in our culture because we are becoming more and more a secular pluralistic culture and much of the influence of God's word that was upon our society has been lost. And it's a reflection on our church today. But then right there, Jesus brings encouragement. He says, stand firm. Stand firm. You can stand firm. And while you're standing firm, don't forget, preach the gospel to all the nations. Preach the gospel to all the nations. He's basically saying, yes, this is all going on. But remember, nothing's going to happen until the end. This is all going to continue to happen. But we can stand firm knowing who Jesus is, knowing our future. And we can be people who are bringing the desperate news, the good news that people need to a dying world, to a broken world. And it's interesting that he connects the end with all the nations knowing this gospel. And so here's the thing we need to know because of who he is, because he sent his spirit, that he isn't just saying this to us and leaving us alone. He's saying, no, I'm in here with you. I haven't left you alone. I have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's in you. I'm able to empower you, even in the midst of all this going on, to stand firm and to bring the gospel to the nations. Very, very amazing that right in the middle of this, he talks about standing firm. And then he moves. And he talks about the abomination that causes desolation. Isn't that an amazing term? The abomination that causes desolation. It's an image from the book of Daniel, Daniel 9, 27. The term refers to something blasphemous, sacrilegious, some abominable object which will be placed in the temple. And I was thinking about this, thinking, oh, gosh, what's, what's sort of current? What, what, would, what would even give us an idea of what this might be like? And I was thinking, okay, I'm a football fan, I'm a sports fan. And, you know, there are times when teams have big fights and one of the reasons is, is that a visiting team will go into the, the home field on their field, in their house, and before the game starts, a group of them goes up, and what do they do? They stand in the center of the field on their logo, and they basically are being an abomination to that team. Like, this is the worst thing you can do. Come into our house and stand on our logo as if, you are basically disrespecting it completely. How many of you know, I've seen, or uh, who are sports fans and know that? Yes, and this has caused big fights, right? This has been, this is like the worst thing you can do. 
So think about that. Now think about God's house. Coming into God's house and standing at his altar, which is the middle, and basically doing what? Disrespecting him by acting as if you are God. You might do sacrifices. You might lift your banner up, and you're standing in the place of God. That's what is being talked about here. This is the abomination of desolation. That's what he's talking about. And so Daniel's prophecy was first fulfilled in 168 B.C. when Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple by building an altar to Zeus and sacrificing a pig on it. Jesus' prophecy looks ahead to A.D. 70 when the Romans desecrated the temple with their blasphemous banners before destroying it and Jerusalem. And this brings the onset of great distress, a period of tribulation. Now, here's the thing. Certainly that was experienced in A.D. 70 with the siege of Jerusalem by Titus and the destruction of the temple. You know, it's interesting why one stone was not left on the other. Usually the Romans, when they came into and conquered, they would keep the temples and the beautiful buildings up. They would not destroy them. But because the Jewish people were so obstinate and it was such a long siege, the soldiers, the Roman soldiers who had to stay there for that length of time were so upset that when Titus tried to stop them, they basically put the temple on fire. And the temple burned so hot that the gold plates melted, and they melted in between the stones. The soldiers being greedy and wanting the gold literally took one stone apart from the other. God's prophecy down to the last detail. That's unbelievable, isn't it? And so every stone was turned over because they were searching for the gold that had melted in it. And the people fleed. There was famine. It was a terrible time of distress. Many of the uh, Christians did escape. But here's the thing. When it talks about this abomination and it talks about it in Daniel, it points to something. This, was, this certainly was a part and a fulfillment, but it was pointing to something even greater, a greater distress, a greater tribulation that was coming in the future. And the reason we know this is because Paul in First Thessalonians, and Second Thessalonians talks about it, and he talks about the man of lawlessness who was to still come. And then John in Revelation talks about the beast in Revelation 13. These point to a future tribulation which is unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and will never be equaled again. This is some pretty apocalyptic imagery, is it not? Jesus is speaking, but then he moves. The Son of Man will come after the distress of those days in the clouds of heaven, lightning, the Shekinah glory cloud, where all the world will see him at the same time. Don't even know how to picture that. Do you know how to picture that? What does that look like? It's sort of he just walks in in a Shekinah cloud that everybody sees him. And the angels blow the trumpet. 
And 1 Corinthians 15 and Thessalonians tell us when, when the trumpet is blown, basically all the elect come up, those out of their graves from the four corners of the earth, and they join him in the air, this unbelievable scene of the coming of Christ as the king of glory. That's what he's talking about there. And right after this, he gives a word of assurance. And Kim talked about this when she was beginning the children's song. As we're looking down the corridors of history, as Christ is putting this prophecy, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. His words. He is the living word. Throughout history, there will be birth pains and tribulation, and many times history will seem out of control. Amen? Does history seem out of control to you? Many times history will seem out of control, and I'm sure that people across the ages at different times are like, it's the end. History is completely out of control. But Jesus, his rock-solid prophesying of his return to establish his kingdom provides assurance for both the disciples and for us as believers today to maintain hope and determination because the world will not end until he comes back again. This is our firm foundation. How powerful is this? Even heaven and earth will pass away, but this word that he is even speaking to us right now is solid. I love what Spurgeon says in his quote. Uh, you have it there. Christian, this should be comforting to you. There has never been a word that left the Savior's lips, which he has ever retracted. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. If you grasp just half a promise, you will find it to be true. Jesus is yes and amen in all his offices. He was a priest to pardon and cleanse, and he is still amen as a priest. He was a king to rule and reign and to defend his people with his mighty arm, and he's still amen as king. He was prophet of old, telling of good things to come. His lips are still most sweet and still drop with honey. He is still amen as prophet. Hallelujah. The prophet is speaking to us this morning. And he's revealing the future to us. So as he begins to end this, he now answers this question, when will it happen? And he says, no one knows the hour except the Father. No one knows the hour except the Father, none of the angels, nor Jesus. It's going to come suddenly like in the days of Noah. When all of a sudden, after preaching for a hundred years, Noah gets in the boat and people experience the flood. They were going about business as usual, right? Life as usual. Isn't that one of the great lies of Satan? Why are you worrying about all this? You've got plenty of time. You've got plenty of time. You don't need to worry about this now. There's other things for you to do, other things that are more important for you to do. 
But the reality is, is that it's the end of the world every day for someone. And it could be the end of the world for us tomorrow. How many people have seen that movie, Don't Look Up? Anybody seen that movie, Don't Look Up? It's very interesting commentary because it's really, they find a comet that's going to destroy the Earth in six months. And when these scientists try to get the word out, they go to the president and everything. The president's not even concerned about it. The president's concerned about her ratings and how she's going to be doing. And, and it, it's this idea that we don't really want to worry about such things. And you ignore it. Uh, and so they, they came up with a slogan called, don't look up. If you don't look up, then you're not going to be worried about this comet that's going to destroy the Earth. And everybody bought into it. Until the comet got so close and nobody could do anything about it. And Jesus is warning us. He's encouraging us. He's saying that the day is coming. We don't know the hour. And so then, how are we to live in these days between his first coming and his second coming? And that's how I want to end uh, the sermon today. Let's just talk about some practical things because we've just been given how the future is going to come about. So the first thing we need to think about is, is that what we're being called to do is godly living in the present. Jesus says in the middle of his prophecy, he says, see, I have told you ahead of time. <laughs> I've, I've told you ahead of time what's going to happen. I've let you know this is what's going to happen so that you're not deceived, so that you don't go after teachings of false prophets and false messiahs. And what does that look like in our world today? Well, it could be all kinds of things, right? Because what are some of the false things that are out there for us to follow and we're deceived by, right? Whether it be sorrow, uh, success, whether it be uh, fame, you know, whether it just be things that are on our heart that we want for ourselves, this, this idea that we're hearing messages from the world. The world gives us what I call secular sermons every minute of every day. This is what you need. You're going to feel better if you have this. Don't worry about this. These people are not your friends. They're your enemies because they believe this. It goes on and on. We get secular sermons that are basically encouraged by the pit of hell to deceive us and move us away from the truth. But we're to have godly perseverance through wars, famines, natural catastrophes, hard circumstances, adversity, trials, and persecution. But why? why? Why would we persevere? Because as Jesus tells us, the end is only when he comes back. And when he comes back, what is he going to do? He's going to take those who are living the lives that he's called us to live in relationship with him into the new heavens and the new earth. Peter says that all this adversity 
is actually refining our faith, which is more precious than gold. Paul says that all of this is like momentary compared to the surpassing glory that far outweighs it all. So he's calling us to live this way, and as we live this way, we will not fall into the trap of losing our love for him and our love growing cold for others. The question I have to ask myself all the time is, how am I doing there? What is my relationship with Christ? And then how does that impact my ability to love others? And, and so for me, personally, it means that I have to keep coming back to the Lord and asking Him to help me because I am naturally inclined to love myself and nobody else. I don't know about you, but that's my natural inclination. But when I come and I'm walking with the Lord and His love is flowing in me and I live out of that, I'm stepping out and I'm doing things and, and literally I'm doing things I never thought I would do because I'm being compelled by His love. And because of that, the lovelessness of the world, the, the, that lack of love and that growing cold that we see all around us, we are becoming those people who bring Love, whether it be in our families, whether it be with friends and neighbors, whether it be across the globe and things that God has given us to do. We are the ambassadors of that love as we live godly lives in the present. And as that happens, the other thing that, that we need to have is a conviction of the future. We have to have an eternal perspective. We have to know now, because Christ has told us this, that he is going to come back again that he is going to bring us home to be with him, that basically what he has done has secured that, and he's going to come back. And so I take that promise, and I begin to live with an eternal perspective and not one that's full of fear of every little thing that's going to happen in my life. But I begin to have a hope that's deeper than those things, I begin to have a joy that transcends those things. I begin to live knowing my future with a great conviction that that is my future begins to set me free from all the things that will put me in bondage, all the things that will leave me in fear because I know now my future and because I know my future, I can live differently. In Ephesians 1, he basically tells us to pray this way, to pray that we would live having an eternal perspective because that's who we are. So just think about it. I don't know how you think, but I know that every morning I have to ask the Lord to give me an eternal perspective because I get tied up in all the things I'm hearing, right? And they begin to weigh down on me. Uh, I can get fearful. I can get fearful for my family. I can get fearful for other things. And, and, and I'm not stepping into that eternal perspective knowing that God is in control, that Jesus is coming back, that I'm his child, that my future is secure. And because of that, I can be delivered from those things and live differently. I can live with hope. So much hope that it even says, Paul says, that we can actually grieve as those people with hope, even though we've lost those that we love. 
when they have known Jesus, we grieve with hope. How amazing is that? So we live this way, godly living, this conviction about the future. And what does that lead to? It leads to an active participation in reaching out to our lost world. What does it lead to? Jesus tells us that the end will come after the gospel has been preached as a testimony to all nations. This prophetic statement of Jesus assures us that nothing can stop this. No matter how bad things go with public opinion or political arena, no matter how much governments may legislate against Christianity, no matter how much persecution is mounted against it, the gospel cannot be stopped until the end when Jesus returns. Think about that. You know, I shared a little bit about being at a service where this deaf population, a, a truly unreached people group, is now hearing and participating in the good news of the gospel and sharing it with others who had never heard it before. How powerful is that? So that everyone will hear. We hear stories from power and light, how brothers and sisters in the Islamic world are turning to Christ. That churches that had five and ten people now have a hundred people in them. That there's a rich harvest taking place in the midst of governments that are working against it, against the organizations that are working against it. But this gospel goes forward because there's a conviction of the future and there's people living godly lives. And out of that, the gospel is being proclaimed both through words and actions. This is just an amazing thing that is a part of what God is doing and he's revealed it to us that we can be a part of that. So that's Christ's message to us today. Here's the future. Here's some of the things that are going to be a part of this future. But here are some of my words of assurance. And remember that not only are these words of assurance, but I am going to be with you to the end. That all these things are just birth pains. They are, they're not going to end the world. The world ends when I come back in glory. So continue to live. Continue to live godly lives. Continue to live with a conviction of the future, to live with hope, to bring that hope with you to others because you have good news that a dying world needs to hear. Amen to this. Amen to this. This is what he's given us. And I think about the fact that we're coming to the table today uh, on, on, the, on the heels of these words. And it, it just gladdens my heart that we come to this table. And this table represents what the high priest has done for us in dying for us, in bringing reconciliation with God in, in making out of that reconciliation of people who believe sons and daughters who can speak to the Father as children and as children ask for the things that we don't have and ask that he would make us more and more like Jesus, his son, who is our model and example. And as a result of that, as we take this meal of faith together, we're reminded not only in our hearts, but we're reminded in our actual souls 
that God is with us, that he loves us. That the future for us is secure. That we have a king who's coming back to take us home. That I have a God who's intimately involved with everything that I do. This is so powerful as I come to this table. These are the things that we, we, we are to recall to our minds, these things that have been done for us through Christ. So we look back and we see, wow, what the Savior has done for us. The one who came and lived in the flesh and died for us and rose from the dead to bring eternal life. That in this moment through the Holy Spirit, we are experiencing, even in our hearts right now, that touch that this is true. And we're looking ahead as he's revealed to us in the prophecy that he's coming to take us home. That's what we do at this table this morning. And here's one of the beautiful things about the table. We're called to reflect. We're called to look at our hearts. Where are we being hindered from these truths? Where are you being hindered from a godly life? Where has fear taken over conviction of a future with hope? Where have I grown cowardly or my witness is not a witness that would be one that people would see and they would see the love of Christ, that I would be the aroma of Christ. These are things that as I reflect, the Holy Spirit begins to take and then I bring them to him. And I say, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for these things. And he is faithful to forgive when we confess. And that's what this moment is for, for each one of us. That's what this moment is for you right now. So I ask the Sweeney's and the Suggs to come forward. I'm going to ask you to pray, lay your hearts before the Lord, prepare yourself for communion this morning.